What's up, everybody? This is FTW with ImodCon. I'm your host, ImodCon, and joining me today is Will Hershey of Roundhill Investments. Thanks for having me. Later on, we'll have reporter Joseph Franco to discuss the continuing exodus of Overwatch players to Valorant, and we'll be introducing our new segment, Fan of the Week. But first, Tencent. President Trump signed an executive order on August 6th banning transactions with two Chinese companies for 45 days. One is with ByteDance, the owners of the app TikTok, and the other is with Tencent Holdings, which owns Riot Games, publisher of League of Legends, Valorant, Teamfight Tactics, Wild Rift, and Legends of Runeterra. Tencent also has major stakes in Supercell, the Finnish developer behind Clash of Clans, Clash Royale, and Brawl Stars. And we can't forget about Epic Games, publishers of Fortnite, which Tencent has a minority stake in. The White House alleges that WeChat, quote, automatically captures vast swaths of information from its users and, quote, threatens to allow the Chinese Communist Party access to Americans' personal and proprietary information. White House officials have told the LA Times, however, that video game companies owned by Tencent will not be affected by the executive order. So, Will, gaming and esports fans safe at the moment, or is there still cause for concern? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think... I think for the moment, we're safe. Um, if you look at the text of the respective executive orders, my read on it right out the gate, and it sounds like the LA Times is kind of confirming this, is when it comes to ByteDance, which is TikTok, it's kind of any business with that company or its subsidiaries, the entire entity is going to be potentially in trouble or at risk here. With regards to Tencent, it kind of seems as though really they're targeting WeChat in particular, um, which would mean that really the gaming properties, uh, including the ones that you mentioned, are probably not at risk for now. And I think really what this speaks to is something that maybe is becoming a recurring theme is with this administration is really not considering all the consequences of when you put out an executive order like this, what it could mean. But I think based on what we're hearing right now, the intentions are not to affect the gaming properties, although there's certainly data involved with playing video games as well. Maybe it's not to the same degree as it is using a messaging service, but there's certainly data that are being collected by by gaming companies, including those that Tencent owns a majority stake in. But then again, I mean, look at look at you know what Tencent also holds. I mean, they own a five percent of Activision Blizzard too. They own a piece of Discord. They also own not that small, but meaningful stakes in Uber and Tesla. So there's like a lot of different moving parts here. I think really they're just trying to go after WeChat. At least that's my hope. There's a lot of conversation about whether the president even has the authority to do this executive order. And the president does seem, I mean, since the beginning of his administration has been using executive orders because it's like the only unilateral thing he can do and doesn't have to go through Congress. So there's definitely a bit of discussion on essentially how far he can get away with this. And of mm -hmm. course, the Chinese government is upset with this entire thing because they claim that this is a bid to essentially force a sale of TikTok to an American company, i.e. there, there's kind of a deadline for Microsoft, which is has been in talks to buy TikTok to essentially close the deal. And since the presidency is pushing this deal and putting it on a deadline. It might actually force TikTok's hand to like sell at a lower price because, you know, it's either you sell to us or you're out. As somebody in the investment world, this is kind of bizarre, isn't it? It's definitely bizarre, and I've had the same kind of thoughts go through my mind. Effectively now, what you have in TikTok is one of the most prized assets in all of technology, definitely within social media, that now, if in fact this is going to happen, they almost become from something everyone wants a piece of to kind of a, almost distressed, where you're exactly right. The power shifts from them 
to whoever the potential buyer it is. Clearly, it looks like it's it's potentially going to be going to be Microsoft. But this also coming back to the Tencent side of this, this also brings up questions around what they would have to do with those majority stakes in Supercell in Riot Games. One thing I think could make some sense, which I'd be excited to see as a public markets investor. Uh, in the games industry would be a spinoff of Riot Games onto a U.S. exchange, which is something that I think when you look at Riot, uh, certainly they get a ton of, of revenues from China, but you know they're based in the U.S. I think it could make a lot of sense to really split them off from Tencent in some ways, and it's probably a win-win in that case. Unlike, unlike the ByteDance situation where their hand's really, really being forced, if Tencent did that, I think it would maybe appease U.S. government in a little bit of a way, but also maybe unlock value for, for Tencent shareholders. That's something I've been thinking about, too. I think you're absolutely right that, you know, th- this administration's kind of going about things in the way that executive orders are the catch-all where you get the, the ball rolling. But I wouldn't be surprised if there is some level of bipartisan support for going after these apps that are potentially targeting U.S. citizen data. I, I mean, I mean, China's done this exact same thing to us for decades. Literally almost every app under the sun website from the U.S. is banned in China. I'm kind of surprised it's taken this long for us to do the same. But yeah, I think I think there's concerns here, and I don't think it's just one side of the table when it comes to politics. I think there's a real uh, concern here. Yeah, you know, I don't think there's ever been a Chinese kind of social media platform or app that has had the level of reach that TikTok has, right? For me, it's crazy you know, that Google, Facebook, I assume Twitter, like all these like major platforms are just straight up banned China because, you know, being American, we allow a level of free speech and uh, the Chinese Communist Party does not (laughs) tend to like that. You know, Google has been trying to get back in China and is back in China at the moment at a very limited capacity, which a lot of Google employees are frustrated with. But, you know, it's not only limited to Google, like even Hollywood, they understand the power of the Chinese market and, You know, a lot of movies and actors that, you know, played roles that were critical of China, like those actors aren't even allowed into the country. Hollywood now has to essentially, you know, if they want to be in China and do well in China, you know, they have to always like, you know, have some Chinese scene or like some scene in China, like do something uh, to make sure that, you know, they're getting that Chinese revenue. The thing is that when you're playing with an actor that is so against the idea of free speech, like these tensions are bound to happen. I think the U.S. companies that were kind of greedily going after China, they they really should have seen this one coming. I think it was only a matter of time before these incongruencies butted heads with each other. Yeah, but coming back to what I'd said earlier, the fact that almost everything from the U.S. is banned in China already, there's no kind of tit for tat here from the Chinese side, right? They've already banned everything. The U.S. can ban TikTok and WeChat. The Chinese have already banned everything. Like, there's there's nowhere else to go at least as it, as it relates to kind of internet-based and, and kind of this whole concept around data. But you're also talking about something really interesting, which is, and I think we've seen glimpses of this with kind of the free Hong Kong movement and the NBA, is there's this fine line of trying to do kind of what's right, but, but also, you know, we've seen NBA superstars that haven't been willing to kind of go out on a limb, if you will, in defense of Hong Kong, because they also recognize how much of their revenue comes from China and how important China is. Um, from a strategic standpoint to their overall business. So it's, it, and, and I think the economy over the past 20 years has gotten so much more global where everything's interconnected, even between countries that are feuding like US and China. Unfortunately, I think there's probably just at the beginning of what could be kind of this, this digital cold war, if you will. But hopefully we can find a solution that works. But I, it's very difficult from our side to, to see how that could play out. 
And well, you know, I guess the reason we invited you on the show to begin with was to talk about the Huya and Doyu kind of streaming deals that have been happening this past week. And Tencent is also heavily involved with both of these companies and has been trying to merge them for a while. So, well, I guess let's do a quick kind of overview. Like, what are these two streaming platforms and why are they important? At the very highest level, for those maybe that aren't familiar, Huya and Doyu look a lot like Twitch does. But as we just talked about, Twitch is one of those platforms that is banned in China. So is YouTube. So really what what Huya and Douyu are are kind of two most significant live streaming platforms in China. And really what's going on here is Tencent, which owns somewhere around 40%, give or take, of each, is finally pushing towards merging these two platforms into one kind of super giant platform that controls a large majority of the Chinese live streaming market, which, by the way, is roughly five times the size of the U.S.'s in terms of the number of people engaging with live streaming. And just to give you a little bit of numbers in terms of how big this really is, the combined value of Huya and Douyu, which are both publicly traded actually in the U.S., will be over $10 billion if, in fact, this deal goes through. And we're talking about, over the past kind of year, combined between those two platforms, $2.5 billion in revenue which we don't know what Twitch's revenues are. I'd venture it's probably somewhere less than that. So just to give you an idea of how big this really could become, uh, you're also talking about like 300 million monthly active users, which is, you know, almost the population or more than the, I don't know where the U.S. population is now, but it's right around there. These are really important platforms when it comes to China. And what we've seen play out there over the past several years, which is kind of interesting because we just saw Mixer shut down is some of the kind of mid-tier streaming platforms have shut down. So you had Chusho TV shut down, you had Panda TV shut down, and really that's been a result of how competitive live stream market is, whether in the U.S. or in China. And over there, why I think this deal is so important is you have a much more mature live streaming economy. Content creators in China, even we're talking about mid-tier streamers or even lower-tier streamers, are on multi-year exclusive contracts with whatever platform they're with. So it's not just the equivalent of, of Ninja and Shroud signing deals over there. It's the it's the mid-tier players. So what this really does by potentially merging the, you know, it would be as if YouTube gaming and, and, and Twitch merge is kind of the best analogy I can give you. You're talking about a power shift from the creators back to what would be the platform. And I think for me, that's really important with regards to the Chinese market. But also, when you look at what this combined company could be if they merge Huya and Douyu, to me, I think that that combined entity becomes a bigger threat to Twitch outside of the U.S. than a YouTube or even a Facebook. And we've already started to see these Chinese platforms you know, move outside of China, notably into Southeast Asia, into Latin America. And I think this is just like a really big deal if it gets done for kind of the shift of power within the global live streaming industry. Everyone knows Twitch in this part of the world, but these companies are, they're massive, just based on how many people in China are tuning in every day. And then there's also been some deals with actual esports tournaments in regards to these companies. Yep. So I think just this week, uh, Douyu signed an exclusive with MTG, which is the parent company of DreamHack and ESL. Another Chinese streaming platform separate from these, which is Billy Billy, just announced that they closed on the League of Legends deal. And to be clear, this is for the exclusive rights basically for Worlds, and I think it's for the All-Star Game, and maybe one other tournament, just for China. 
So just for the Chinese market, they're getting the Mandarin exclusive for those league tournaments. And I'm hearing that the number was for three years, $113 million. Now, that's like almost basically what the YouTube deal with Activision Blizzard esports was. And that includes Hearthstone, Call of Duty and Overwatch League. To me, that says two things. One, it says how big league is. Two, how big is the Chinese market if they're able to sign an exclusive just for these three tournaments and be willing and be willing to pay that kind of money? It's like we can't even fathom how much more esports is in terms of viewership base, in terms of mainstream culture in that part of the world than what it is here. Yeah, the other deal that I think kind of got buried under this was the Dignitas deal with Huya, in which three of its Counter-Strike players will start streaming on Huya on August 1st. <laughs> I mean, that no, that's an interesting that's an interesting deal. Hui has also done some stuff where they've worked with Western esports teams before. So they, they have an exclusive, I believe, with Team Liquid for Chinese streaming. What's really interesting, what's going on behind the scenes here is, I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but the content creators, the casual streamers within China are all locked up. Imagine if like the top 200 streamers in the U.S. were all locked up under multi, multi-year contracts. Where do you go next if you're a streaming platform to try and bring exciting content on your platform? One, you go and you sign deals directly with the esports league operators. So we saw that. And then two, you're signing directly with teams. And I think it's this natural evolution of kind of, to me, it's interesting that we're getting to the point now where where they're starting to sign these deals with individual players. But this is what's going to happen, I believe, in the U.S. as well. So the Chinese market is three to five years ahead of where the U.S. is in terms of live streaming. And the one last thing I'd say on this that's really interesting that we're starting to see in the U.S. too is live streaming starts as gaming, but it ends up becoming a lot more than that. Just Chatting IRL is probably the fastest growing channel on Twitch. In China, you're already talking about 40% of revenues for these live streaming platforms comes from non-game streaming. And I think it just speaks to the power of streaming platforms. And once again, I, I think I talked about this last time I was on, but like, this is why all the big tech companies are investing because gaming is just going to be the the way that gets people in the door. But then there's all these other types of content you can deliver via streaming. You can even potentially move towards e-commerce via streaming where you're actually buying things that you're watching someone interact with. I mean, the upside is endless there, but... Yeah, no, the Chinese platforms are light years ahead of what we are here. And I mean, is there any chance, like if Huya and Douyu, you know, whatever their combined entity becomes, if it all goes through, starts to really aggressively push into the U.S. market, I mean, is there just more chance that the White House or Congress could just be like, okay, no, you guys are like uh, siphoning user data. Can't we, like, we're just banning you. That's a great question. I mean, I think to my knowledge that neither of those platforms as they've been standalone have tried to do so. But yeah, I mean, like, why would you let a new platform come if you're banning these other ones? I think that that's certainly a risk. You also have Tencent, which is the parent company here. Once again, Tencent owns owns everything under the sun that's involved in gaming. They recently started to roll out their own streaming platform in the US. I think it's called Trovo. So I think they would probably want to push that product rather than uh, uh, you know either Huya or Douyu into the US, but that's I mean that's certainly at risk now, right? Like to your point, like who cares what the medium is if it's live streaming versus WeChat messaging like it's all related to the same concept of we don't want our data in any way getting back to the CCP. And yeah, you know, it's like one of these things where I talk to my friend who, for example, is like really big on TikTok and, you know, loves loves the app. And, you know, she thinks that who cares? These Like all of these companies are siphoning our data anyway kind of situation. I tell her that the way the Chinese government operates 
the U.S. government has been butting heads with China for years about this stuff, right? China just doesn't seem to really care and kind of just plays by its own rules and does whatever it wants, right? And at a certain point, like, that relationship couldn't continue to be tenable, in my opinion. Like, it was going to blow up. So this is all really fascinating stuff. It's all, you know, tied into inter-geopolitical economics and politics. Um, we'll definitely have you on when more of this develops. Thank you. Sounds great. Thanks, Ahmad. And now I'm joined by reporter Joseph Franco. Last week it was announced that Overwatch League players like Atlanta Reign's Baby Bay and Houston Outlaw's Rockus were moving over to Valorant. These are two major personalities within the scene. Both Baby Bay and Rockus will be going over to FaZe Clan's new Valorant team. They'll be joining Overwatch League MVP Sinatra, who is currently with Sentinels. Joseph, this is now becoming a recurring trend, where the top players in Overwatch are going over to this new game. What is going on? I think Overwatch in general has this this underlying identity kind of crisis going on, and I, I don't think Blizzard's done a, an incredibly great job within these last few years of addressing it. The company at large has only really expedited that issue. With the the roll lock system coming in late last year and the, the hero pool system, I think a lot of older and more FPS-oriented pro gamers that are in Overwatch and the Overwatch League are kind of disenfranchised. Um, they're they're looking for something new. They're looking for something fresh, and they're kind of finding a home in Valorant. They're they're finding kind of a fresh start, and funnily enough, they're they're doing pretty well for themselves. I think Sentinels is is really doing well in North America, and and Phase look to be super promising. Obviously, why the Exodus? It's it's a multitude of things. It's Blizzard. It's the game. It's you know Valorant looking pretty you know exciting and new and fresh. It's a fresh take on the FPS kind of tactical genre. So it's it's a it's a couple of things. It's not a not a clean situation. It's pretty messy. And I mean, how can a league survive when its top players and personalities, the ones with storylines that people have been following most closely, continue to just bleed away? I, I think so far, you know, the Korean players really haven't jumped on to Valorant yet. I mean, and. I guess for Western fans, are they able to, I don't know, create that same level of connection as they had with Arrakis or Sinatra or Baby Bay? Korean players definitely haven't jumped over en masse just yet, or they might not at all. It seems like there's a few reasons for that. One being that it seems like the, the PC kind of cafe culture in South Korea doesn't necessarily kind of support the very kind of invasive anti-cheat system. There seems to be a problem with like the software they use and the the, the software that Riot's kind of using, their proprietary kind of anti-cheat. So there's kind of a clash there. So it's not necessarily picking up as much steam. But, you know, Korea's doing all right. Weirdly enough, Japan's doing, you know, well for itself and, and Valorant. But when it comes to NA, it seems like in regards to the Overwatch League and the players kind of like bleeding away, it is worrisome. I think Overwatch 2 in particular is going to be that that next big step for Blizzard and kind of like having players kind of rebuy back in because it is so I, I won't say dismal because we're in a really good spot right now within the Overwatch League. We got these tournaments coming back in. We're getting exciting matches. You know, we're kind of limiting um, the effects of the hero pool system that's been pretty highly criticized. Hopefully that kind of got the, the, the meat of the question, but it, it's it's kind of all over the place. Well, you know, speaking of Overwatch 2, Jeff Kaplan, he's laying out a development plan for the Overwatch franchise to essentially be more like Valorant. Have you read up on this? I, I, I've i seen the AMA. I've seen and, and kind of listened to some opinions on it. Um, it it's, it's pretty interesting because the game's so divorced from a game like Valorant. It, it would be another kind of massive overhaul, which, again, 
it, it seems like Blizzard always just wants to kind of like fiddle with Overwatch to figure out what it wants to be or what they want it to be this week. Uh, it, it is interesting. I, I've seen some of the, the comments that the developers have made, like Jeff and, and the, the rest of the crew, but it's it's pretty surprising that that's kind of going around. It doesn't necessarily come across in terms of the development cycle, but again, it seems like Overwatch and Blizzard and the team around that that is developing the game seems to kind of be clashing internally. Maybe they've kind of course corrected. Maybe they've kind of like reverse split the room. Again, I, I'm going to kind of leave my chips on the table. You know, I'll, I'll bet when the, the hand comes out, I'll, I'll bet on the river. How has Overwatch's player base been looking like? Has it been relatively consistent? Is it shrinking? Is the game expanding into newer markets? It's kind of difficult to say. If we were to judge like the game's strength based on like the viewership, I'd say that within these last few months with the additions of the monthly tournaments... People have definitely been looking more fondly with just voting with their kind of wallets, let's say, or voting with their attention spans. The, the viewership seems to have been, you know, a slight increase with these these monthly tournaments looking pretty decent. I think Asia reportedly is, is doing incredibly well in terms of viewership and kind of activation. But in terms of just like monthly active users with the game itself, I've got to assume it's probably down like we haven't necessarily had. A ton of new content. A lot of the resources are being poured into Overwatch 2. It's difficult to say for sure. If I had to guess, I've, I've got to say it's definitely down. But I think the interest on the esports side of things is trending upward. I was uh, looking into kind of which games are popular in India. And I was told that like PUBG Mobile, for example, is like super popular there. While Fortnite has is pretty much non-existent. And the reason I was told is because like the Indian audience doesn't like cartoony looking games. I guess I had never really considered that, like how art style can really affect a potential like, you know, billion person market. I wonder to what extent the art will change in Overwatch 2 because definitely Overwatch defined itself with its art and diverse cast of characters but to like get into some of these markets that you know prefer PUBG or Counter-Strike I mean is the art going to have to trend in a different way would they be willing to do that would they want to do that I think it would be a pretty big departure away from the kind of light-hearted I, I wouldn't say anime but kind of cartoony art style that Overwatch definitely has to kind of go away from that that'd be a pretty big shift the one thing I can say about Blizzard and you know credit where credit's due I I do appreciate their polish I don't think they'd be willing to to kind of go that far um, and make something a little bit more realistic it, we'd probably have to wait for like some sort of like Overwatch 2.5 or like Overwatch 3 before that happens it, it is interesting though that that art style is kind of one of the big deciding factors in games, I know that uh, some of the early criticisms for Valorant was was something similar kind of coming out of the, the Korean messaging boards. A lot of people were kind of disappointed that a game that's coming out in 2020 looked as dated as Valorant did. And I don't necessarily kind of hold those opinions, but a lot of people were, were a little bit, you know, turned off by it. So to your point, like it is, a, but it's a big solution for developers to try and solve because it's something that isn't going away. It's something that's like very on face value and, you know, people have to kind of pay attention to it if they want to get into those markets. So it's, it's kind of an interesting trend. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if it's possible for, let's say, the Indian version of Overwatch, just like when it's played there, or if it's downloaded that way, like to just have a different skin running on the game, but it's still like the same underlying game that could still be played across um, be interesting. worldwide. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I guess lastly... Is this the last we're going to see of Overwatch players jumping over to Valorant? Oh no, I think I think 
<laughs> it, it's sad to say, but I think we haven't seen the last of it. I think we're probably due for another kind of like shipment of Overwatch players to, to Valorant or maybe even other games. By the end of this year, I'd imagine that some some more players are probably going to just hang up kind of, again, just disenfranchised. They're looking for something new. They're kind of looking at the gold rush that is Valorant at the moment. I think they're they're licking their chops. They, they kind of want to move over, try it at least. Um, and, and Overwatch isn't really going anywhere. So coming back isn't necessarily taboo. I don't think the community is just going to abandon all hope and and leave the game. And I don't think they're going to kind of leave the players if they were to return um, from their gold rush kind of mining operation in Valorant and, and come back at some point. Um, will they? It's tough to say. It depends on the player. I think the players that have move over for, you know, specifically FaZe Clan, you've got Corey, you've got Baby Bay, you've got Rockus. I think those players in particular are, are really kind of situated well to do pretty well for themselves in Valorant. They, they kind of fit the mold. They do really well. Baby Bay in particular being that insane hitscan player as well as Corey Rockus being that kind of glue with with some mechanics behind him for sure I don't see them kind of coming back anytime soon so to, to kind of return back to the question I I think there's definitely going to be more more people shipped out uh, out west well I guess we're just gonna have to keep an eye on what Activision Blizzard will do to keep its scene from completely imploding and now let's answer a question from our fan of the week which this week comes from Bob Holtzman. Bob asks, what should we make of Dr. Disrespect grabbing 335,000 peak viewers on his teaser on YouTube earlier this week? Joseph? With Dr. Disrespect coming in with the, the amount of viewers that he did, it's, it's impressive to say the least. I think that it, it's an testament to his, his brand direction, the consistency with it. Um, the, the, the fervor of the fans that he's kind of built around, I think the best way that I've seen it put being him being the, the internet's favorite heel, like this, this kind of weird antagonist. I think the mystery surrounding it is still like piquing people's interest. People are still super interested in exactly what happened to him. What exactly is going on? I've seen, you know, conspiracies running all kinds of, you know, left of center, right of center, whatever it is, like everybody seems to have an opinion on it. It's it's kind of the the um the the internet celebrity has really kind of taken over with Doc and yeah, it's it's hopeful, it's interesting, you know, it's it's kind of interesting to see YouTube uh make a push there. We'll have to see exactly what happens with that if if it's an exclusive thing, if he's just, you know, there, how many people are going to come over if any. Um, in terms of streamers, in terms of viewers, so it's 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 pretty interesting. Um, I'm in terms of what to make of it. I, I'm not sure what to make of it as of yet, other than you know it's pretty exciting and kind of uh, interesting to interested to see how it kind of pans out. It's really a testament to his marketing. I've been reading up on what some PR folks are saying in terms of like his design and like the kind of the virtual space and playground that he's creating for his fans. And he's kind of redefining what streaming can be as a entertainment platform, as a long form show. It's, it can be more than just a guy in front of a camera with a video game, you know, running behind him. And I think you're right. A lot of the interest around doc and what's, you know, what happened to him is fueling this incredible, swell of attention towards him because you look at you know, another big launch this week was Ven, which is this new esports gaming post cable channel and you know their viewership i mean it was i guess decent for a brand new launch but man i mean doc just drops in a stream in which he's not even there and 
has 300 like times more viewers. It, it's kind of like nuts. So I think, you know, I think reporters like you and I, we need to kind of get to the bottom of this, what's going on. It's It's been really frustrating because the people I've been speaking to just are not willing to talk about it or just don't know enough information to adequately talk about it. So I don't know, but we'll continue following this. But it's definitely an interesting uh, testament to just his fan base and the, the cult that he has created, the cult of personality, I would say. With that, Joseph, thank you so much for jumping on the show. Yeah, no, thank you. Thanks for having me. It's always a, always a pleasure. And that was FTW with Ahmad Khan. Please rate and subscribe to help support the show. Full transcripts of the show can be found at ftwahmad.com. To follow Will Hershey and all the insights he has in the world of gaming and esports markets and investments, follow him at MaybeBullish on Twitter. To follow Joseph and his writing, you can find him over at Volamel on Twitter. If you want to follow my writing over at the New York Times, the Washington Post, and elsewhere, you can find me on Twitter at Imad. Annie Pay is our producer. Questions about the show can be directed to her at Pay underscore Annie on Twitter. Joe Domek is our outreach manager, and Ron Lyons is our researcher. With that, we'll catch you guys next week.